Hi, everyone. And hi, Ness. Hi, Alex. And hi, everyone. <laughs> Shall I do kickoff for today? Yeah, go for it. Okay. Um, biodiversity loss is one of the greatest man-made crises the world has ever known. And as I recalled in yesterday's podcast with Zoe Jewell from Wild Track, which I hope that everybody will listen to because I thought it was a really interesting one, we are at the moment in the sixth great extinction or as some people call it, the Holocene, Hol Holocene extinction event, which is, of course, called after our current uh, geologic time uh, that we are living in. And this is the first one, the first great extinction event as we humans are witnessing. Uh, the five previous extinction events all came before the evolution of the Homo sapiens, which was only about 200,000 years ago. And these were triggered by cataclysmic events or, or a combination of events. So think about the fall in, in sea level or in the impact of an asteroid. That's the, the famous one of some, some 65 million years ago that uh, died out all the dinosaurs or uh, a sudden increase in volcanic activity. And this time we are not only present for the very first time, we are actually the ones to blame. And mass extinctions are different from... Uh, the, the, what, what specialists normally call background extinctions. There's always a loss uh, of, say, between one or, or ten species per decade. That is just the, the regular loss of species uh, in, in, in the typical, let's say, Darwinistic way. But uh, some 250 million years ago, the most catastrophic mass dying event ever, the great dying, as it is called, of, of the Permian Age, wiped quite suddenly, suddenly in geological terms, wiped out about 90% of all species in the oceans and 70% on land. And it took tens of millions of years for life to recover. And this time around, we may lose half of all species by the end of this century. Or in, in another study, uh, 45,000 species were evaluated uh, in the 2008 red list of, of the IUCN, the, the International Union for the Conservation of Nature, and they said 17,000, so be, uh, that's about 40% may vanish. So let's say between 40 and 50% uh, we are losing in, in this century. And conservative estimates suggest that the extinction rate in the modern area is now about 100 to 1,000 times the normal extinction rate. Those are the conservative estimates. So climate change contributes to biodiversity loss, and that's another example of the compounded risks uh, that I referred to before in previous broadcasts. And each of these crises magnifies and intensifies the effects of the others. So because our planet's warming and drying in some areas, species are pushed out of the niches that they currently occupy. So some of them, think about, for instance, species on islands are trapped. They have nowhere to go. Other species, like fish, can move much more easily. Now, worldwide, as the water is rising and, and ponds are drying, you see, for instance, that amphibians and their eggs are exposed to much more ultraviolet radiation and disease and a third of those species are now threatened with extinction. Insects is another story that's also going really, really rapidly. So in short, we are rapidly losing nature and it will be a really complex process to reverse that. And now one of the elements in our fight against the loss of biodiversity and the loss of habitat is rewilding. Uh, 
And that is what we wanted to focus on today. So this was a really, really long introduction to say that we're going to talk about rewilding today. Now, the good part is that most of us can contribute to a bit of rewilding. It's not something that's only in the hands of other people. So after this long introduction, um, over to you, Ness. So how, how's the situation in the, in the UK? I assume that's typically an example of a country where a lot of nature must have been lost. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, and as anybody who's been in the UK and, and sort of travelled backwards and forwards over the last 30 years, I think you'll you'll notice that um, insects have been, de been in decline. There's less bees, there's less butterflies. And that's just on like, you know, um, an everyday kind of level. Sparrows as well are, are in decline. Um, but yeah, it's in, I mean, to be fair, nature in Britain is, is in serious trouble. <laughs> um, more than half of our species are in decline. 15% uh, actually is threatened with extinction we've already hunted all of our top predators to extinction um, native woodlands uh, cover just 2.5 percent of our land um, you know life has been ripped from the seas um, just to meet unsustainable demand you know overfishing um, for instance um, the desire to have meat and two veg every day and fish and two veg every day um, you know, it's, it's, it's consumer demand as well as supermarket demand or suspected demand. Um, rewilding obviously takes a bigger picture approach, and that's what I'm, I'm really excited about. Um, it, it aims to restore the sort of wider natural processes that support life. Um, everything from, you know, just fl allowing flooding to happen naturally, allow woodlands to naturally regenerate um, allow the sheep to just graze um, naturally um, and, it, and it's not just something that stands alone it complements existing conservation work this is not something we're saying this should just happen on its own and, and this should be the solution this happens alongside conservation work um, and, um, and the thing it's regenerative farming it's also marine protection it's you know, looking after trees and nature tourism. There's all these different elements. I mean, I've actually stayed on a rewilding farm and it was fantastic. There was the sort of Angus cows were wandering around with the sheep and, and there was wild boars and it was fantastic to see, just to experience it. Um, and this, this freedom and health, these animals were so healthy and they were naturally walking around this quite a large land. But if you, they would have beforehand would have been roped off in, um, in sort of single species um, environments. Um, there were wild boar that were running around. It was, it was a fantastic thing. But anyway, um, <laughs> I, I, I believe actually that real rewilding is, a, is, a, you know, is our hope for the future. Um, we can all do our bit for rewilding. Um, one of them obviously is the rewilding tourism. So you can go on, a, if you go and decide to do where you're going to go on holiday, you know, why not choose a rewilding farm? something you can do you can rewild your garden um, you don't need to keep it all nicely clipped you can just allow it to be free um, there are lots of uh, websites that you can um, uh, uh, look for those you can go off grid as much as you can <laughs> um, I mean if anybody's listening and have any experiences they would like to share um, then that would be great we'd love to hear from you if you've if you stayed on a rewilding place or if you've experienced anything like that or have any opinions um, but conservation has, as I said, been doing a great job um, and it's been working for na uh, nature for decades. This rewilding um, kind of concept takes it up to the next level. We're going to talk about how, how that actually happens. Um, but it, as I said, it seeks to re reinstate the natural processes um, and, where appropriate, 
reinstate missing species like beavers and all that kind of stuff, which I know, Alex, you're going to um, bring up a bit later. Um, but it's about creating the conditions for nature to thrive. It's about re-establishing natural processes that repair ecosystems that boost biodiversity. I, mean, I just I just love the thought of being able to, you know, imagine seeing like an abundance of, of life back into our land and our seas where wildlife numbers are growing instead of, you know, shrinking. And we're working with nature as a part of nature instead of exploiting it. Um, you know, and, and, and landscapes can change when people let them. Uh, rewilding can reverse species extinction, um, obviously tackling climate change and improving our overall health and well-being. And it encourages this balance between people and the rest of nature so that we thrive together. It's a really holistic, free, um, wholesome way of, of like kind of approaching biodiversity and sustaining our natural world. Um, and, yeah, it is, again, it said, you know, it encourages people to reconnect with nature. Um, you know, it's the air we breathe, the food we release, you know, we, and the water we drink and everything. So yeah, um, we must take action, really. You know. Yeah, and I, I, I see uh, Joshua already, but for Joshua, we, uh, the way we set it up, we discussed it earlier with, the, with the, the regular listeners, is that we first talk a bit for, let's say, half an hour, and then we open up for, for, for questions and comments. And uh, yeah, so con continuing on, on what you just said, this is also what the United Nations said, when they declared uh, this uh, decade... Um, the uh, decade on ecosystem restoration and that was launched last year very ambitiously with a call for uh, more imagination and to see action on a scale as we have never ever seen before and the world must rewild and restore an area the size of china to meet the commitments on nature and climate says the un and when uh, they launched the campaign they said that the revival of ecosystems uh, must be met with all the ambition uh, as we had seen in the space race. And that is a comparison that you often see when you talk environmental issues. Often people say, well, what you saw in the 1960s with the space race, if we would see that kind of ambition and that kind of trust in uh, the progress that we can make if we all work uh, together or if we actually compete together depending on whether you look at national or an international scale but once you have the ambition and and you bring in all the knowledge you can do so much and that is typically what we need for uh, for rewilding and uh, yeah as you just said the existing conservation efforts they have proven to be insufficient to prevent the widespread loss of, of biodiversity and the ecosystem collapse so this UN launch of this decade of ecosystem restoration is an urgent call for just a large-scale revival of nature in, in farmlands and forests and ecosystems. And if you look at how we are using the resources that nature can sustainably renew every year, the UN has calculated that we are using about 1.6 times that amount so of course, the one time should be should be the maximum kind of use that we can make from from nature, and we're using it 1.6 times. So uh, what we're doing is all the time is is to put first the short-term economic gains uh, for let's say our generation, and we forget about the future of the next generation. And so we we prioritize our consumption above the the health of the planet. 
So the call of the UN of last year was for, for all parts of society to take action. So that includes, of first and foremost, governments, but it's also for business and for citizens. And it's a call to restore and rewild urban areas and grasslands and savannas and marine areas. So, um, yeah, so that is the, the, the big ambition that we're working on. Yeah, it's fantastic. And let's, let's, let's hope we all, we all do it. Um, you know, just to sort of circle back on the rewilding, um, I mean, it's one of, one of the lovely things about this is that, um, we, you know, it's supporting people and nature together. I mean, there are various principles, I suppose, of rewilding. Um, and, um, and obviously supporting people and nature together is one of them. And it's all about um, us finding ways to work and live within healthy, flourishing ecosystems. Rewilding um, so you can enrich lives and, and help us reconnect with wild nature, as I mentioned before, while also providing a sustainable future for local and also wider communities. Um, one of the other principles um, is that you let nature lead. Uh, and that's everything from like uh, just allowing rivers to just be free, free movement instead of like trying to make them go in straight lines and um, to natural grazing, as I mentioned, you know, just letting the sheep and the cows move around naturally. One of the things that I really witnessed was that they went round in a big circle. They kind of went round the sort of and they stopped and they went in the water and then they went round and, and it was lovely. And they all moved together. They were like, they're all look, walk, you know, looking out for each other. It was it was a beautiful thing just to watch. You watch them come around. So nature does. Nature is an amazing thing. Um, you know, they're, they're living creatures after all. And, and rewilding seeks to reinstate those those natural processes, um, you know, things that are inherent within the species. Um, and again, this also includes um, reintroducing missing species where appropriate. Um, particularly in the keystone uh, species. And it's, it's not geared to any human-defined um, sort of end state or anything. It just goes where nature takes it um, as a way of creating resilient local communities. Um, as I said, you know, sort of nature-based communities, finding opportunities for livelihoods um, that can work alongside and enrich nature. And you're working at nature scale as well. Um, natural processes lie at the heart of, of rewilding. And it's, it's really interesting. There's like... Um, for instance, something people don't really think about, but if you, you know, if you just let wildlife do its thing, for instance, when dead plankton or other marine life, um, you know, just float and do their thing, they actually, you know, it's rather than go around and, and like we would do the sort of steward, stewardship, which is what rewilding is, is not saying we do. We would go around and we'd be going, clear it all up because that's what we think we should do. But actually what, what, what rewilding is, is like, well, you know, just let the dead plankton do its thing and let it when it's... So like, for instance, um, you know, uh, dead plankton, it's, it, plays, it regulates the climate by storing carbon as it falls to the ocean floor. You know, who'd have thought that, for instance, unless you know, unless you're a scientist, unless you read the, read the documents. Um, you know, salmon also carry important nutrients from the sea up into our river systems and soils. Um, the carcasses of animals provide food for others and enrich the earth as well. Um, and then the eating um, and sort of breeding, the swimming, flying, all this kind of stuff and the trampling of all these different species um, just creates an, an amazing range of, of natural living processes, different habitat spaces, um, you know, and also, you know, controls growth as well uh, for different plants and things. It, it, they manage they manage their natural world <laughs> naturally. <laughs> um you know, and, and entire landscapes can be changed just simply by the presence or absence of a species. 
which we've witnessed because we've <laughs> we've either hunted them to, to extinct that you know they've they've been pushed out because their habitat we've, we've used all the trees for instance for paper or for um, furniture or whatever it is that we do or just to clear it to put houses in which we love doing particularly in the uk it's like oh there's green land i know let's flatten that let's sell that flatten it and put some houses on and and therefore you know so, th- so that's what i mean there's all these landscapes have changed um and then we call these species uh, ecosystem engineers which I love the idea of that. You've got these animals that are like ecosystem engineers um, and they're keystone species. Uh, in my sort of um, create, sort of creative film like thing, I've got this sort of like cartoon like effect, you know, with these sort of <laughs> the animals that are going around doing these sort of engineering things. But obviously they're just doing it naturally without having to dress up. Um, and obviously they exert a greater influence on their surroundings than other species. Um, you remove this one of these keystone species and then like the wolf or the beaver and then the whole system, um, the whole natural system collapses. Um, but you help one of these ecosystem engineers, um, such as the mycorrhizal fungi, to thrive, you know, and it will fundamentally and positively alter its environment, you know, to benefit the whole thing. So, you know, the fertilisation of soil when dung beetles bury their, their dung, for instance, um, is an essential natural process, yeah. you know. Um, yeah, and you, you just mentioned the wolves, and I think that is yeah. the, the, the most spectacular uh, example that I can think of and i think probably many many listeners know know the example of the reintroduction of of the wolves in in yellowstone national park that happened now some 25 years ago and that was the first deliberate attempt to return really a top level carnivore in a large ecosystem so the gray wolves successful return in yellowstone really from the brink of extinction is is one of the greatest rewilding stories i've ever seen and i would advise everyone to to look on YouTube on on this uh, this short documentary that explains it. But what you what you see there is that if if you go back in time, wolves once roamed from all the way from the Arctic to Mexico, uh, but then they were hunted uh, went hunted down all across the country from the 1870s onward, basically, and then by ni- 1926. The very last wolf pack had been killed in Yellowstone by park employees as part of the policy of that time that all uh, predators should be eliminated uh, also in in national parks. Um, Of course, there's always the image of the wolf, you know, all the fairy tales, etc. There's always the the negative, dangerous wolves. It it eats your grandma or it's... it's, (laughs) It's uh, it's uh, Peter is uh, is is, uh, is uh, Peter and the wolf, etc. Um, and and so they're always presented as really dangerous to humans. I can't remember when I there's really a child memory that I was with my father in um, in a uh, in a zoo, and there were wolves. And I remember saying to my father, "But they just look like dogs." And yes, my father said, "You know, they they basically look like like a German Shepherd." And I had always read those, or read, I suppose my parents read to me those fairy tales, and 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 the wolf was always depicted as some kind of really angry, bad-looking, dangerous animal with really big teeth and really scary. And uh, and then it turned out they were actually basically just wolves, and still a lot of people still like dogs. And um, still, a lot of people have to uh, to 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 see this. And so, what happened is that because of that reputation, um, it it's uh, people are still afraid that they will attack people. And uh, 
that is not true. Wolves kill a little bit of livestock, but that's only like 0.2% of the available livestock. And what you see is what when uh, the Endangered Species Act was enacted in, in, in the early 70s, following um, only a few years after the first uh, world, um, uh, the first Earth Day that was then celebrated only in the US in 1970 that wolves were among the original species on the list. But then what happened because of this polarizing of, of the reintroduction of, of uh, wolves, uh, it took another 20 years before they could finally do that in the 1990s. And um, so the wolves have been absent in Yellowstone for 70 years. And then what had happened to the ecosystem was that because of that absence, the ecosystem has completely fallen out of balance. So. Uh, the coyotes ran rampant and uh, the elk population exploded because, of course, they were no longer hunted by, by the wolves. And that resulted in an overgrazing of, of the willows and the aspens. And without these trees, the songbirds began to decline. And then what happened is that beavers could no longer build their dams. So since they didn't do that, the riverbanks started to erode and without beaver dams uh, and the shade from trees and other plants, the water temperatures were too high for cold water fish. So all these things happened just because the wolf was taken out of the ecosystem. So when they then reintroduced the wolves in the 1990s, the scientists were astonished how quickly their return stimulated the transformation. So the elk and the deer population started to respond immediately. Uh, so uh, they were going down and also that they were going to live in different areas. They, for instance, love to retreat to woodlands where they are more safe. It's a bit diff more difficult to find uh, grass, but they have more safety in, in the protection of the woods. So where they were living was changing. And then within about 10 years, the, the willows rebounded and then in 20 years the aspen began flourishing and then because the trees were there and the beavers returned the riverbanks also stabilized and all this meant also that the songbirds uh, did return together with those beagers and also the eagles and the foxes and the badgers so this is in a fascinating story of uh, of rewilding by just bringing back the, the top uh, predator in uh, in the hierarchy into the system. It's fantastic. Absolutely wonderful, isn't it? Um, and as we see, the more benefits of, of rewilding, um, and people know this, but it draws down carbon from the atmosphere as well. So when we actually calculate that restoring and protecting native woodland, peat bogs, you know, for instance, um, species-rich grasslands, Heaths over a total of you know six million hectares could actually sequester forty seven million tons of CO two per year, um, and this is more than a tenth of the current UK greenhouse gas emissions. Um, it obviously helps wildlife adapt to climate change as well. Um, if you rewild the key areas and connect them up through this sort of like a, a like a patchwork, if you want, of of sort of nature rich habitats allows the wildlife to move around um and um and to sort of navigate the different spaces um to be like no to be like nomads to be fair to be nomadic like originally like they're supposed to be um and you know they they move across these habitats and and they adapt um and the habitats actually adapt um as climate zones um are shifting north 
So this obviously has a potential to save, you know, a huge number of species from, from this climate-driven decline or extinction. So let's not put barriers down. Let's let them move freely, like we should allow people to move freely as well. Um, but, you know, um, the reverse is, reverse is biodiversity loss as well, rewilding does. Um, it marks the change in direction, sort of moving from this continued managed um, decline to restoring like this is you know the abundance of of, of britain's wildlife and um and the missing species uh, and we know that nature's going to bounce back like you man- mentioned you know with um um when the wolves were brought back and the you know the elks and the deer population started responding really positively um so we know it's going to make a difference um we know that it will just bounce back because that's, well, that's what it does in the land and on the seas and the rivers and all our water courses um but we need to take the right steps to do it um and i mentioned before and, and you know because people are always wondering about finances and how much is it going but actually it also helps rural and coastal communities um because they can have these nature-based enterprises um, and different productions and employment opportunities. And as I said, we've all got an opportunity. We can all do something to do with this rewilding thing. We can take a job, um, you know, promoting rewilding or doing something that's connected to um, rewilding an area, you know, advocating something, working in marketing, working for a charity that's doing something, um, taking your holidays that are, that are in these environments. Um, and, of course, it improves our health and well-being. So, um, you know, the more nature we've got, the more freedom we've got, The you know, we've got clean water, um, better food, healthy soils, which means we can obviously grow, grow, grow better food. Our air is, is breathable and, and cleaner. Um, we get good health. Our flood defences are better as well. You mentioned like, you know, the beavers and all this kind of stuff, all this just stuff that the animals do and, and have been doing for centuries. Um, and it's important that we work um, to ensure that everybody, this equity aspect, we, everybody has access to wild nature. Um, and even in our urban areas, um, you know, if we can restore these ecosystems uh, to allow them to move around, to drive these changes and shape the uh, the living systems that we depend on, you know, and and it comes not just from like you know single land spaces, not just like somebody who's got one farm, but as I said, you know, if we can join this up, it's so important to create these wildlife corridors. We talk about that in an urban environment when we're creating biophilic design, biophilic cities. We need urban corridors. We need these on large scales as well so that the animals can move between forests and can move between lowlands and highlands and wetlands and drylands if you want you know not just in the uk but everywhere um you know from source to sea really and um and this is huge you know long-term benefits for everybody for our future generations you know for us now we're going to reap the benefits but you know like that thing is you plant a tree for today and it you know for the for the future um generations but um, we do really need to secure these these long term uh, benefits, really, um, of yeah. rewilding. So. I like the the whole uh, concept of corridors, and that was just last week the uh, biggest wildlife um, eco duct uh, ever is uh, it was was opened in California, okay. uh, which is which basically uh, says that uh, the roads in America are so extremely wide that if you finally build one in america that it has to be longer than any other because you the, the road that the wildlife has to cross is just much wider than in other countries uh we have uh, already about 60 of them in netherlands who so are going to uh, build more than 100 actually um, america used to have only one uh, which was actually not built as an eco duct uh, to to connect uh, two areas but it was a leftover 
um, a road crossing that they didn't use anymore. And uh, but now they uh, they kind of came back by building uh, the, the 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 longest in the world. Uh, so good for America to work on a corridor. I also want to mention here the example of Costa Rica because I think that is another spectacular one uh, to look at, especially considering that we're with Costa Rica not talking about a rich country. It's it's not an extremely poor country either, but it's 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 really let's say in the middle. Um, uh, their uh, their experience is amazing. So. In, in the 1970s and 80s, Costa Rica had one of the highest deforestation rates in Latin America. And it managed to turn that around in a very short period of time. So if you go back to the 1940s, about 75% of Costa Rica was covered in rainforest. And then the loggers came and much of the land was, was cleared to grow crops and livestock very much in a way as you now, nowadays still see in, in, uh, in Brazil, for instance. And it is unclear how much land was lost. We don't have the exact data, but it is thought that between half and, and a third of forest cover was destroyed uh, by 1987. And after this absolute devastation of, of the natural landscape, the government interfered to restore and to preserve forests. And that is also an example of the absolute important role of governments. You can't get there without governments. Mm -hmm. And uh, in so in 1996, the Costa Rican government started by making it illegal to chop down forest without approval from the authorities. And then a year later, it introduced an essential element in this uh, reforestation scheme, which is the the PES, the, the Payment for Environmental Services Program. Um, with those two elements, you see today that now close to 60% of the land is once again forest and, and the landscape uh, is, is home to about half a million plant and animal species. Now, this um, achievement, which is really, really remarkable, is is a, a clear disparity to the rest of the tropics where deforestation rates are, are still increasing. And according to the University of Maryland that has really researched uh, all of this uh, in, in, in detail, they said that in 2019, uh, tropical regions lost close to 12 million hectares. So that is about 30 football fields per minute with nearly a third of the of the loss taking place in older and carbon rich primary forests those are really the jewels of this planet that we that we need to protect um so now how did costa rica do it and uh, the the beauty of the scheme is that it was driven by economics it was this combination of a ban on deforestation with the introduction a year later of of pass uh, which uh, pays farmers to protect watersheds and to conserve biodiversity or to to mitigate carbon dioxide emissions. And, and that's so this ban combined with um, economic incentives, that has been the reason for success. And I remember reading somewhere, I'm not sure if I have to quote right, but I, one of the ministers in Costa Rica said uh, we found out that uh, money was the easiest way to reach the heart and i thought that was a, a nice quote i'm not sure if i have it correct here um so what happened then to costa rica now 
they welcome 3 million tourists per year and more than 60% chose to visit Costa Rica because of its environment. And last year, tourism uh, produced $4 billion in revenue for the country. And uh, that is good for about 8% of the GDP. And it, it gives jobs for 200,000 people. So Costa Rica is a beautiful example. There's actually more of them. If you look around, um, Guatemala is doing quite well. Uh, Mexico, uh, Rwanda is a country that, that scores uh, well in, in, in many fronts, also in this field. Rwanda, there you see, for instance, the example of um, the, the visits to uh, mountain gorillas. That's such an exciting thing that attracts so much more tourism than it costs them to protect um, Cameroon. India is also uh, reforesting, but India also has all kinds of other problems, so that's a more complicated case to mention here, I think. Um, but they've all committed to restoring at least a million hectares of forest um, through what is called the Bon Challenge, which is a global effort to uh, restore uh, 350 million hectares of degraded e ecosystems and deforested, deforested land by the end of this decade. So these countries lack what Costa Rica has, uh, and that is a very long history of environmental policy coherence and consistency. And uh, and that is something to admire for a country like Costa Rica, that it's just standing out in, in the way uh, it has uh, governed its environment, as well as its defense policies. One of the very few countries in the world that doesn't have an army, for instance, which means that you have money for other things. And... Um, so yeah, so so tourism has uh, contributed a lot. Also, uh, going briefly back to what I said about Yellowstone, it it costs thirty billion this whole program to reintroduce uh, the wolves. But the uh, gains in tourism because of this spectacular story is actually thirty five billion. So it was uh, even from a financial point of view, it was uh, it was a good thing to uh, to do. Yeah, wonderful. I suppose, you know, if people are listening, it'd be nice to hear, maybe we can sort of throw it open a bit now and, and ask people what, what they're doing. Um, you know, if what you're doing, you know, yourself, I suppose one of the easiest and, and sort of simplest things you can do um, to play your part in rewilding um, is to plant native species, um, obviously flowers and shrubs and stuff in, you know, in your, in your garden, in your backyard, in pots. Um, you know, help create habitats for for the you know the butterflies, the insects, the bees, um, the the birds and the bats, um, and on all these other things. Um, you know, and, and actually take part in restoring wetlands. Um, you know, you can do this. There's lots of programs that you can sign up to. Um, if you just just you know Google um, you know rewilding and then your area or your country, um, you'll find something. Um, you can restore wetlands as I said, by, by removing invasive plants. You know, you can kind of get a team together, something that you can do on your birthday, kind of, you know, as a bit of a, a, a bit of a something different and then go off for a drink afterwards. You know, always good. <laughs> um, you know, I mean, so, yeah, I mean, you can rewild your garden um, as well. Yeah. Oh, so Joshua's back in. So That's hi, Josh. Yeah. Question of Joshua. I'll do take next caller. Hi, Josh. Thanks for doing I thought that that was I thought that might be a good opportunity to to chime in. I'm sorry. If, the longer you guys go, the more notes I write, the worse it gets for everyone. Um, so um, I, you know, I, I want to bring us a little bit back to a program that you had on afforestation. Um, 
because uh, this has been brought up, uh, you know, uh, I, I think is a, a potential fallacy and fantasy for a number of years now um, that we can essentially grow forests for continued industrial use our way out. Um, and that's why I have turned to hemp as I have. And you probably knew I was going to bring this up. Um, and it's not just that it can really be more effective from a climate adaptation perspective on a global basis, which I know now I've done enough research. Um, but, you know, we don't have the at least 10 years, uh, more likely 100 years for forests to mature and then do all of the things we need them to do. Um, and they aren't as effective at things like evapotranspiration, phytoremediation, uh, carbon sequestration, uh, or something called cryoturpidation, I believe, which allows us to regenerate the soil. Um, so on so many different scientific levels, um, it's, it's, it's not going to get us there. And hemp does help us not only in the fiber space, but the food, fuel, and medicine spaces as well. We can also make advanced materials and polymers out of it. So it gets us, we've got 50 to 60,000 uses today, and we don't even know how many uses in the future. Um, and when we apply AI and quantum and advanced minds to this, it will accelerate our ability to address climate change. So I'm sorry for co-opting your show. I would have done it a couple of days ago if I would have been able to get on. Um, so one other thing that I need to get on here, because I've been laughed at not just by, uh, you know, kind of for my perspectives regarding hemp and how far we can go with it over the last few years, um, but also recently by, um, I would say, Green Deal mocking neoliberal perspectives, um, ardent capitalists. Um, when, and they're saying that as we forecast apocalypse, like uh, that we're essentially doomsdayers, that we don't understand anything, we don't understand the science, that the science isn't settled. Um, and we're not saying that we're going to die tomorrow. We're just saying if we don't stop our practices that, you know, we don't have another 5.5 billion years here, at least. And who does or doesn't get off is in question. Um, and, you know, so I've kind of been from down on the climate activist level, entrepreneurial level, anti-war level, looking at these things, all the way up to the transhumanist level of like, hey, this is evolution. If you don't figure out how to use tech to save yourself, we don't care. We're going to get off. We got a bunker if we can't get off in time. Um, so I know that I'm rambling, but I have a job to go to because I still have to work for a living. Um, so I'm going to say one, uh, a few final things, uh, you know, from a let's uplift and think about the fact that we can rewild. Did you accurately say that it costs $35 billion to bring wolves back into Keystone? Is it $35 billion? Yeah, I think that's the number I, I remember. I'm looking it up now if I can find it for you. Well, okay. If it's billion, that's a, I mean, that's a mind boggling number to reintroduce wolves, but totally worth it. We're doing it in Oregon too, although we have some fights about whether or not that's good for farming. Um, but, uh, 
Biden's asking for 33 billion right now for more wars. I would rather spend it for more wolves. Um, uh, but I'm, I'm selfish in that regard. Um, and, uh, you know, when I see you know, these keystone species being brought up, um, the bees, hemp and cannabis helps the bees. Um, it also, you know, it will allow the beavers to focus on their native species to go after as opposed to get bored and, you know, cut down everything around them that isn't native here in Oregon. Um, Oregon has a hemp institute that supposedly has a billion dollars for this, um, but they're, they haven't even addressed the fact that concrete is the most polluting industry on the planet. And you know, meanwhile, our Eastern Oregonian paper runs something about how extruding concrete out of 3D printers is going to save the universe. Um, so, I mean, we're just in, I, from my perspective, kind of this bat crazy world where people don't accept science um, from scientists. Uh -huh. um, and but finally, I'm going to be done after this. Um, I don't, we have, like, we can do this in eight generations if we think outside the box. Um, we can make a lot more progress in one generation than we're currently making. But I'll tell you that from a climate perspective, climate doesn't recognize borders. Um, so why are we recognizing borders other than for colonizers' best interests and capitalists' best interests? It's not supporting the majority of the people. It's not supporting the global south. It's not supporting workers. Yeah, there's, there's a lot into all uh, that you just said. Uh, too much to comment on everything. First of all, let me uh, correct myself and thank you for saying it. When I mentioned 35 billion, I was at that moment saying that is way too much. That's impossible. Um, you were absolutely right there. I just looked it up. Um, it is uh, uh, 30 million per year. So uh, over those 25 years, that's way more, but that is way less uh, than, uh, than, uh, than 35 billion. So it is uh, $30 million per year to run the program to introduce wolves, which I still think is quite a lot of money, actually. And uh, it brings in uh, $35 million extra um, in tourism. So that is the, the calculation uh, that has been made. Uh, now on hemp, um, I'm, I'm getting, uh, like you, more and more fascinated by hemp. Uh, and that is 100% uh, thanks to you uh, raising it several times. I noticed that you sent me a message just before we started um, on hemp, but I couldn't read it because I was, uh, I, was, I was just getting started with this show. It was like five minutes before we started. I think it was something on Facebook, uh, but I haven't uh, forgotten about it. Um, on uh, on the point of uh, of it's not so much uh, the one or the other. It's not like uh, are we doing rewilding or are we growing hemp? Um, the, the idea of rewilding is that you create that you recreate a very uh, biodiverse, complex ecosystem which has. Uh, a lot of advantages, uh, and and part of that is also in, uh, in 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 capturing carbon, and that it's that is good for climate for a number of reasons. It's just one of them. It, another one of of the many many reasons that I'm not all going to mention here, but another one is that you, uh, it is not that you just you rewild and you put a fence around it and you never go in again. If you look at the ins uh, at the example of Costa Rica, for instance is uh, 
people still go in the regrown forest. They still cut trees, but at a very limited rate. So they do earn income from the products that they get out of the uh, out of the the regrown uh, forest. Um, but it's it's not just slash and burn that you at one moment grab everything and then it's gone. I mean, it's a bit like. You know, people that win the lottery and then they, they are going to, to spend it on fantastic parties and after a year they're that poor again. That is not a very sustainable way of dealing with your, uh, with your assets, whether that is money or whether that is uh, nature. So it just, um, it, it ultimately is like going back to a much more balanced way of learning with nature, but you first have to restore this balanced nature. So um, if one specific product uh, like hemp that has um, uh, specific advantages for us uh, to to use and it also depends on the region where you can grow it of course um, that's that can be part of it i mean it's it's uh, rewilding is not like uh, we're going to stop all agriculture but it is uh, making specific areas uh, really available for nature to restore and for the other areas that you're working on um, make them uh, use them in a much better way so that for instance the soil is not washed away by the first rains when you cut all the trees you cut just a few trees but the root system stays intact so the soil stays there so it's really much more like a long-term sustainable way of living and and part of that formula is is the regions where you rewild and in other regions uh, you're using them but i promise you uh, uh, firmly here that I'm going to read uh, the hemp thing that you that you sent me that I saw in the corner of my eye, um, and uh, and I'm very happy to hear that you have a new job, uh, by the way. So uh, congratulations on that. I think I saw Evelyn um, briefly popping up um, asking a question, and um, but she's gone again. Was there a question, Evelyn? Oh, oh Evelyn <laughs> got a work call. Uh, good luck. So, okay, so Joshua has uh, a new job. Evelyn has a work call. Um, that is wonderful. I think I saw a question typed. Oh, I see Sharon first. Hi, Sharon. So good to hear you again. <laughs> Thank how's, you. How's Alex Arizona been... <laughs> this morning? It must be early for you. It is 8.46 and oh, having my, my coffee. Good and morning. it's a beautiful yeah. day in Arizona. It'll only be up to 95 today. So, okay. that's yay. A cold, that's a cold day for you. <laughs> We're dreaming um, of that in Ottawa. <laughs> um, I should, I ju oh, first, Vanessa, I just wanted to say that I stole your term rabbiting. I loved it. I couldn't, um, I didn't know what it was. So I looked it up in the Urban Slang Dictionary. <laughs> And I love it now, and I'm using it on Zoom calls, like quit rabbiting, you know, so much. <laughs> <laughs> just, just an aside there, um, Alex. I loved what you said about the um, the Wolf Project in Yellowstone um, in Arizona. They have, as you know, um, reintroduced the Mexican gray wolf um, to northern Arizona, some parts of the Sonoran Desert that I live in, and um, we have had quite a controversy with the Mexican gray wolf in Arizona. Um, some of our um, wildlife protection agencies ha had to ask for protection from the federal courts. Um, we had uh, a federal judge that did give us some protection. I think the um, 
one of the main controversies was with our ranchers and our cattle ranchers. And, you know, there was conflicts over that. And the Mexican gray wolf was portrayed absolutely as a beast, just someone that's going to come into your cattle and just start tearing them limb to limb. And, you know, it was just um, what they put out about the Mexican gray wolf. And it just kind of broke my heart because um, I am a native Arizona, Arizona, and this is my state. I have seen wolves in the wild and, you know, I don't have that same um, opinion, but I'm coming from an emotional standpoint, not a scientific standpoint, because I don't have that kind of brain. So I just love the awareness that's being raised about these uh, Mexican gray wolves. And um, um, we're trying to find non-lethal ways, you know, to protect the cattle and yet keep the wolf in, in Arizona, the Mexican gray wolf. And um, one of the things that Alex said um, really resonated with me, um, I used to live on a golf course, as you know, there's a zillion in Arizona. And I would look out early morning, like, um, you know, 6 a.m. when the groundkeepers woke me up, and I would look out and there would be coyotes just loping down the middle of the fairway. And so they're coming into urban areas and, you know, they're threatening um, as they are, as they would do. And so, you know, introducing the Mexican gray wolf would cut down on that. So I just think there's so much to consider. And like I said, I'm not a scientist. I'm coming at this from an emotional uh, point of view, which sometimes is not the best way to do that. But I, I think that um, this Mexican gray wolf project was so beneficial to Arizona. And one last thing, I, I saw this live cam where Colorado, I think, um, U.S. Fish and Wildlife introduced some uh, wolf pups to uh, northern Arizona. And I think they, um, they didn't have a live cam on them, but they had some live pictures. And the wolves were such great parents. And I'm thinking, you know, these, these are not monsters. So, and the last thing I would want to say is, um, you know, we tried, at, some nonprofits tried to raise awareness um, about this, you know, to let our, our kids know that they're not just monsters. And one of the quotes was, what a country chooses to save is what a country chooses to say about itself. So I, th I think, you know, instead of portraying these animals as monsters that, you know, I'm glad that you're doing an awareness on this. Thank you. That's it. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks so much, Sharon. Um, it's, uh, yeah, there's, there's actually more than a hundred of them now in, in Arizona, New Mexico, which, uh, as Joshua said, uh, those uh, borders are an imagination uh, that we made, and uh, wolves or climate, uh, for that matter, are not um, uh, not paying attention to borders. So, in that combined ecosystem of Arizona and New Mexico, there's um, uh, there, there's now uh, yeah more than a hundred, and they started with only eleven. So. Uh, I, I think it's a great project, and I recognize what you say on this controversy around it because we had on my island in the Netherlands, from which I normally report to all of you uh, in in the summertime. Um, it's not a real island because uh, there it it is connected by dams to to keep the sea out because well we're still Dutch of course. Um, and over one of those dams, a wolf has come walking all the way from Germany, came all the way to, don't ask me why, to our island. And um, it was spotted last summer while I was there, just like um, about, you know, a five minute walk from my house. It was filmed and it went viral all over, well, viral in the Netherlands. And it was on the evening news, etc. 
And I must say, the next day when I was jogging in the dunes all alone, and uh, at the, I, was, uh, I was looking around me more than normal if there wasn't a wolf hunting me down. But we have wolves in the Netherlands now since um, since about five years, and I think it's about three years ago that they, for the first time, got uh, got their uh, their little uh, uh, little offspring. Uh, there's there's two couples now uh, with little uh, pups. I think you call them puppies, pups or cups, whatever it is in English. And um, it goes without any problem. They're in the east of the Netherlands. And uh, we don't tell the public where they are. And it's going well. And sometimes, especially the young ones that are not good hunters yet, they go for the easy solution of, um, of, of killing sheep uh, because the sheep, don't know what a wolf is anymore so they don't run away so it's just basically food waiting waiting to be eaten by them um but um yeah for the sheep personally involved i don't think it's a nice experience to be eaten by wolves but what the public forgets is how on a scale of tens of millions and millions of animals we are slaughtering them in horrible ways in the slaughterhouses all over uh, the western world and and the rest of the world uh, at unimaginable ways it's not allowed to be filmed uh, we don't want to think about it we do, don't want to know it but the few instances that a wolf is killing some of our cattle is absolute peanuts uh, compared to what we are doing to animals so uh i i i get angry when i hear people complaining about these things for the individual farmers of course uh there should be a compensation and a country like germany for instance where they have wolves now for about 25 years they came back from from eastern europe um uh, they have worked out all kinds of schemes how to how to compensate because of course the people in the city get very excited about wolves but if you're if you're a farmer and your sheep get eaten by a wolf you get much less excited um so uh, that's one of the few cases where the interest of the farmer and the sheep involved are the same uh, and and the government has uh, has compensation uh, for that so yeah so thank you very much it must be fascinating to live in in Arizona and uh, and see uh, uh, see all of this happening. Evelyn is back from her call. Hi, Evelyn. Hi, Evelyn. Hi. Can you hear me okay? Yes, I can hear you. Okay. Um, yeah, sorry about that. I was just... Um, yeah, wolves are, are a bit topic here as well. We have wolves mainly up in the mountains and they eat the sheep. And that was, we even voted on that. We vote on everything. So we voted on whether they were allowed to hunt the wolves. And uh, I think we said no on that. The wolves or the sheep, sorry. Sorry. <laughs> whether they were allowed to, whether people were allowed to hunt oh. the wolves. Sorry. There we go. Yeah. And um, yeah, so it's just basically what you just said. The, the farmers... Um, don't like the wolves being back and everybody who lives down here where I live, we're all excited about them. Um, but what I was going to say, there's there was this rewilding um, project he, right here where I live that it took about um, two years to build like sort of a side arm to the main river. Um, well, not build it, but sort of giving it back to nature, just letting the water flow where it would. And and helping it along a little bit. 
And um, that was mainly from lessons learned because there were so many floods. There was a lot of flooding going on. So what our government, our local government here did was just to decide, okay, we need to do something. And one of the things that I can't remember who said it, like one of the, some politician, I think. Anyway, um, he said that now nature is in charge. And I think that's, that's, that sums it up nicely. You know, it's nature that's in charge now and how that entire area has changed. You would not even believe it. Now, just to give a bit, a little bit of background on this, like three quarters of all water that leaves Switzerland, um, flows through my, I, I don't know, province, canton, we call it. Um, so, we have a lot of water here, so we use, um, we have a lot of hydroelectric power plants and all sorts of things. So in order to use the water, we had to build like um, dams or whatever. And, and there's like some concrete um, on the sides just to channel the water. But what we're doing now is really just... Um, opening up some side arms and stuff like that to rewild re that area. And um, uh, I like what I see in terms of biodiversity and the, some of the, the beavers are back. You know, I like beavers and some of the birds that you now hear and sometimes see. It's just, it's fascinating to see. And um, they did that. I think they finished exactly 10 years ago. So just in those 10 years, it's the changes are amazing. And I was here to see it, which is, which makes it even more exciting. I think that's, that's it. Sorry. I was a bit long. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Wonderful. You always make us um, uh, wish that uh, we, we could be in Switzerland and uh, yeah, it's, uh, exactly. such a beautiful country and so much to see. I saw one more remark um, written uh, by, by Ida who said um, that uh, not mowing the grass uh, is, is mm -hmm. that rewilding? And I would say yes. Uh, certainly, you you see, yeah. for instance, also on, on giving an example of my island that I'm missing very much here in Ottawa, um, there uh, there is now a deliberate policy of in uh, some areas not mowing the grass. You you increasingly see it in more places, mm -hmm. and it's amazing what happens because grass is a bit like you know it's like a desert if from an ecological point of view. There's not much happening there. But when it is growing, you get more diversity, uh, you get uh, more flowers, uh, you get more insects. Uh, a lot is happening. And another important one is um, the uh, leaf, leave the leaves on on the field. Uh, Everybody, especially here in, in Ottawa, they're crazy about leaf blowers. Uh, you hear them everywhere. And, and everybody is you know people don't want to have one single leaf on the grass but those leaves are where the insects uh, put put their eggs um, and it's also you you just need to fertilize the ground again with the nutrients that are in those leaves and it is it is what nature how nature has intended it that you know there there are leaves in trees and they fall on the ground and they are part of a natural cycle just so just by by Taking them away, it's the same as mowing the grass in a way, but you, you, you just you, you create a kind of monoculture 
that is not good. So a very simple thing that you can do yourself is just not mow the grass or at least take one area uh, of, depends how big your garden is, where, where you don't mow the grass. What do you think, Ness? Yeah, absolutely. We have a thing over here in the UK that we did last year. It's called No Mow May. And so it was literally nobody mowed, the, well, it's supposed to have no mowed, nobody mowed you, you, the grass, which was fantastic. So um, this, one of the things I was going to say, actually, that you just let the weeds grow because actually it's often the the weeds that the insects and the, like best because obviously they're native species generally. Um, and obviously they're really pretty in their own right. But, you know, for instance, like, you know, nettles, they're great for caterpillars, you know, for so that they, they turn into butterflies or things like that. You know, dandelions, they're great for, for bees and, and things as well. I mean, there's, there's thousands of insects that are in decline and, and anything that we can do. So, yes, I uh, definitely don't mow your grass. <laughs> um, and I think as well, like, like you said, um, Alex, that... You know, we, 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 we're sort of almost obsessed by being too tidy, putting fences around stuff and, you know, you know, making everything controlled. And, and I think one of the things I love about the rewilding concept is that just let it be, let, let nature be, let, let people be. But, you know, if, if, we stop, if we start imposing our will on everything like we try to, um, it, it, we, we just, we're destroying it. We've, we're destroying our planet because we want it to be a certain way. We need X, Y and Z and we, you know, we want our concrete pavings and we want this, that and the other. If it was just, if we just let everything just be natural and just we live, you know, in harmony with each other, um, it just would, the world would be a better place. Um, and, I, and that's the main thing for me about rewilding and why I love it so much is that, you know, everything from wildflowers to natural water courses to um to us being able to take our shoes off and walk freely um and uh yeah i i just i think yeah so it, people it, people it, people listening plant a little mini meadow in your garden um you know, leave a bit to go wild as you said alex so don't don't clean up the leaves let the little insects um you know sit in that little wood and the for you know the um the branches that have fallen and and yeah just just let them be and watch it just watch them go and meditate go and just like we used to when we were kids anybody listening here i used to love this i used to sit on the floor i still do um obviously as you probably can imagine <laughs> i love picnics and I, I just love i love and i can do it for hours i can sit on i put a blanket on the floor blanket blanket on the grass and i can just sit and look at all the little things that are growing you know and moving around in the in the in the grass that's around me and obviously it's, it's even richer if it's if it's got wildflowers in it and weeds so that that would be my that'd be my parting shot i think you know rewild your garden <laughs> <laughs> that's a great one um we are at the full hour which we set as our maximum some time ago so let's uh, let's uh, let's keep it there um thanks so much uh, for joining uh, i know it's been a few busy days uh, there were four podcasts in the past four days um, and some of you have been joining all the time um, i'm not planning anyone for uh, later today or tomorrow but you never know uh, but but thanks for having uh, an, an audience that is uh, that is always there um, and thanks for those that are that are new that are uh, joining and um, I see, um, uh, thanks so much for uh, climate ambassadors. Yes, uh, we actually, uh, many countries have a climate ambassador. The Dutch climate ambassador is actually a good friend of mine. 
And um, um, uh, and uh, yeah, maybe we play a bit of a role as climate ambassadors here as well. If that was uh, if that was the meaning of it, we try to be. Um, thanks so much. Um, next week we're back on Monday uh, because it's a bit of an exception that um, uh, Vanessa and I are on the Wednesday together. Next week we're back on Monday and we uh, same time, so 11 o'clock Eastern time, uh, and we want to focus on food uh, issues, all kinds of things, the green living and food uh, combined. So um, who, who knows, we might talk about the recipes, but that was not the intention. Uh, but uh, but anything with food comes up. Um, and uh, that's it for now. Thanks so much. And, um, and uh, wishing you all a beautiful day. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.